Down south, they say it's the economy, stupid. Up here, we say it's the economy, eh? And this is Political A Economy Radio, a progressive take on economic issues in Canada and beyond. My name is Michał Rozwodski, and welcome to the show. Happy International Women's Day. To mark the occasion, two interviews on women's strike in the USA and in Poland. My first guest is Barbara Smith. Barbara is an icon of the U.S. women's movement, particularly its black radical wing. She helped establish black women's studies as a discipline, was a founding member of the Pekambaki River Collective in the 1970s, helped establish Kitchen Table Women of Color Press, and went on to run and win an insurgent campaign against the Democrats for a seat on Albany City Council in the 2000s. She is presently on the National Planning Committee of the International Women's Strike USA, uh, an organization which is bringing a much-needed radicalism to this year's International Women's Day in the U.S. My second guest is Joanna Grzymała-Moszczyńska. Joanna is completing her PhD in psychology in Krakow, Poland, and is a leading member of Razem, the new left-wing party in Poland that narrowly missed out on parliamentary representation in the 2015 elections that brought the reactionary peace or law and justice party to power. She was among the organizers of last October's women's strike in Poland that brought a reinvigorated women's movement out onto the streets and stopped a tightening of Poland's already barbaric abortion law. To begin, my conversation with Barbara Smith. First question, of course, is whether you could just tell me a bit about the strike. You know, why call for women's strike um, right now? What are some of the key points of its political program? Who are some of the organizers? You know, what... What's the importance of, of this day in 2017? I think that we're seeing a real surge in activism during this period because of what happened with the presidential election in the United States. Because of the outcome of the election, people are so much more attuned to and aware of all of the incredible contradictions that actually would exist in our society, and I'm talking about U.S. society, no matter who had won that election. So it's really kind of interesting that people are suddenly very, very motivated and getting really mobilized around some of the nagging and ongoing issues that, as I said, were in existence prior to November the 8th, and would have also been issues even if there had been a different outcome. I think that the extremism of this regime, unlike any that we have ever seen in U.S. history, is really getting people to speak up and to want to uh, be with other people who have similar kinds of concerns. And I think that women's leadership during this period is really important. I've talked about now the United States and what has happened in our nation, but actually the international uh, women's strike uh, began as a response to what is going on and has been going on in other countries, like uh, in Poland. And uh, with these successful uh, actions uh, against uh, violence against women, for reproductive justice and reproductive rights uh, with these successful actions. I think there's just kind of an, as I said, an upsurge of 
women all over the world saying, let's take back March the 8th, let's do uh, something traditional that had been done in the past on Mm -hmm. March the 8th because it was originally conceived of as, I believe, uh, International Working Women's Day. Mm -hmm. And that kind of faded away and it just became a time to celebrate uh, women sometimes in very um, bourgeois (laughs) bourgeois uh, yes, ways. So the thing is, uh, with a combination of circumstances and uh, situations and conditions, I think uh, women's, women are rising up and will we'll definitely be rising up on March 8th this week. Um, what's, what's the legacy that you're drawing on in... Maybe you could talk a bit more about both the legacy in the U.S. that you're drawing on and and globally. What's the... How do you see this fitting into the history of the women's movement and the sort of the ebbs and flows of it? Um, and like you say, this new kind of radicalism that's that's coming up now. You talked about the ebbs and the flows of uh, the women's movement. I've been involved in the feminist movement in the United States uh, since near the beginning of what is referred to as the second wave which is from the mid-1970s. I'm not talking about when the second wave started. The second wave generally is thought to have started like in the 1960s. But by the mid-1970s, I was quite involved in what was a new and growing women's movement in the United States. At least the parts of the women's movement that I related to, that there was a real... um, fundamental kind of grasp of how class and race and gender and also sexual uh, sexual orientation, sexuality, how all of those things kind of uh, intersected with each other. And in fact, that was uh, the politics that we as black feminists were building, that you had to look at all of the um, levels and layers of oppression to understand what women's uh, situation uh, actually uh, was. And as I said, um, at that time, I think there was a much deeper understanding in different parts of the women's movement, not just among socialist feminists or among black feminists. There was a deeper, I think, understanding of what the contradictions uh, were, uh, particularly around uh, misogyny and male oppression and et cetera, and exploitation uh, around uh, wages and pay and all of those things. I think that with the... um, succeeding generations of women who were able and have been able to take advantage of the um, demands of the earlier women's movement, and I'm talking about the earlier second wave uh, women's movement, the women who have come uh, afterwards and succeeding generations, they take a lot of things for granted, and they, they also have redefined feminism to be what, middle-class and upper-middle-class white women say it is and assert is, is, are their rights, if you see what I'm saying. So yeah. lean in, that lean-in feminism that um, assumes that every woman is in a situation of wanting to break the glass ceiling, <laughs> yeah. that, that, that's our major objective, you, you're just breaking right, the glass ceiling. You're right ceiling. there, right below it, and just, just need that little push, right? Right, that, just that <laughs> little push, yes, indeed. And as uh, one of my wonderful uh, feminist sisters of decades, uh, duration, uh, Zila Eisenstein, 
um, who uh, actually wrote a book, Capitalist Patriarchy, or edited, it was an edited uh, uh, anthology or volume. Uh, it was called Capitalist Patriarchy and the Case for Socialist Feminism. She's one of the wonderful people who's working on uh, the strike for March the 8th. And what she and I were talking about early last year when we were doing something else, <laughs> working on Bernie Sanders' campaign, that is, uh, she talked about, we're not so interested in getting through the glass ceiling. We don't want to fall through the cement floor. That's our question, our, our situation. We, we want to get women out of the basement, the basement of complete exploitation, being unpaid and underpaid, uh, not getting a, a decent living minimum wage, the, the, most of the women, in other words, most of the women in the United States and in the uh, country, are, are, sorry, in the world, they're not dealing with glass ceilings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're dealing with survival. So all of that, I think, is a part of our um, women's strike on March 8th. We're bringing out some of the key issues that affect women, and we're not ignoring the sexual political issues, like around violence and um uh, reproductive freedom, etc. We're not ignoring those issues. We just we're just saying you have to get the whole picture. Uh, we have to speak out against racism. We have to speak out uh, and organize against imperialism and the the leftovers of colonialism and colonial relationships. So it's a very um, faceted and uh, robust feminism that we are bringing to the fore. I think with our international women's strike. Yeah, and and this leads into I mean, I, just today I saw I saw another two articles I believe uh, one in the L.A. Times another one online in Quartz, uh, claiming that you know the opposite that this is a super narrow strike and that in fact striking is a privilege um, and characterizing March eighth as a sort of privileged women's strike how. How do you respond to that as a, you know, as a radical feminist being being called out in this way? And, and you know, what, is striking a privilege, basically? Oh, absolutely not. Yeah. I mean, the, the privilege is uh, is asserting that it is a sh- uh, showing a privilege to go out and speak up for your rights. The people who are calling us privileged, they're the ones who are actually privileged because they are saying, stay, you know, silent, don't speak out. Stay in your place. Uh, that's crazy. Yeah, that's crazy. They're all they're they're all kinds of uh, women uh, who are going to be participating in different ways. Not necessarily just a classic labor strike where you uh, leave your workplace. Although there will be plenty of people uh, doing that. Uh, we're getting emails thick and fast. We have been for a number of weeks, but. One of the emails that I didn't have a chance to open that I will try to make heads or tails of as we're speaking uh, is about the fact that there's a school district, and this is not the first school district, that will be closing on uh, March 8th because there's so many people who are planning and participating in this strike. They figure we might as well close the school system down. I'll see if I can find that for you. But... um, that's you know, uh, you know. I mean, people, you know, teachers are not. Yeah, you know, they're not. They're not horribly the paid. The, exactly. They're horribly paid. You know, and 
So to, and that's true of other people who work in a school building who are not necessarily yeah. uh, teachers. If teachers are well educated and extremely poorly paid. Yeah. <laughs> so in any event, as I said, uh, we have. Uh, I think we've uh, reached a lot of different kinds of people. Uh, there are people who are in uh, labor unions. Um, there are uh, other uh, labor uh, organizations uh, that, you know, of, of working women, of women, you know, who uh, are dealing with uh, inadequate wages, poor working conditions, uh, and their organizations have indeed signed on. I, I think if uh, people go to our website, which is uh, womenstrikeus.org, they will get an incredible picture of uh, all of the solidarity and all of the uh, uh, participation of women who are hardly privileged at all. Right. And what are some of the other ways of participating? Like, how how do you see this this day going beyond just like you said the traditional strike? Uh, well, one of the things that we are uh, definitely talking about is how to continue the momentum. Mm-hmm. of uh, what it seems like we have uh, uh, unleashed. And let me just read you the headline. I was able to manage to find it as we are speaking. Uh, lack of staff closes Alexandria City Schools on March the 8th. Beautiful. <laughs> and Alexandria, I assume, is in Virginia. Yeah. Uh, I will. Uh, yes, it is Alexandria, Virginia. More than 300 staffers had asked to take Wednesday, March 8th off. <laughs> So Alexandria City Public Schools will close on a day without women, leaders said. That's kind of uh, our sister counterpart um, action because the people who organized the Women's March on Washington have also called for a day without women. These efforts are completely entwined with each other and in collaboration. We have our own platform, but uh, it's a very um, sisterly and uh, collaborative uh, process. So... That's what's happening. And I want to sort of connect this strike to the general political strategy right now. And again, just, you know, how you see it in your position, especially with your long history um, in the feminist movement, the black feminist movement, especially, and not just that, you know, your history as a radical working both in sort of small radical groups building movements, but also having run and won insurgent campaigns for elective office. How do you see this relationship even just now, you know, a few months in between social movements and electoral politics and insurgent campaigns and all of this together moving forward um, in this new sort of Trumpian, Trumpian era in the U.S. Well, I think insurgent campaigns are very important. And I guess I, ran, I did run an insurgent campaign <laughs> <laughs> here in Albany. I did serve on our common council. That's what we call it here, which is basically our city council. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did serve... Uh, on it for two terms, uh, from 2006 through 2013, and I guess what made my uh, campaign or my candidacy insurgent was the fact that I did not run with the Democratic machine exactly. in the city of Albany. So, um, and I definitely, every minute I was on the council, I always was a part of the progressive voices on the council, and that put me in uh, opposition to the mayor at the time. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess you can say I ran an insurgent campaign. It wasn't like on the scale that, uh, say, uh, Bernie Sanders' campaign was and some other campaigns, like that wonderful member of the city council who's a socialist out in Seattle uh, oh, yeah. 
I think you know who I'm referring to. Yeah, yeah, I've interviewed her before on this on this show. She's, yes, yeah, yes. So those to me, those are the insurgent campaigns I look up to. But in any event, um, I think that it's really important for people to use every strategy and every measure for uh, transforming the status quo and the and the present uh, crisis that we are in. Um, some people will only gravitate to electoral politics, and that's fine. We need to have principled and hardworking and alert people in those positions. But as somebody who has run for office and served in office, I do not see electoral solutions as the sole solution for how we get out of the mess that we're in. I don't think we just replace the present regime with another set of people and say, and, and then kind of wash our hands of it and say, yes, we got it done. Huge, Everything's fine yeah. now. Because the, the, um, the uh, systems of oppression that we are seeing so blatantly being deployed at this time, those systems, as I said, they existed before November 8th and whether, uh, however the outcome or whatever the outcome of the election had been, uh, we still would be dealing with those systems. It's just that it wouldn't be as blatant. There wouldn't be people wouldn't necessarily be as uh, disfloored and uh, amazed by and astonished by the depths, the low depths to which uh, somebody who's called the president of the United States and his minions, the white men who he surrounds himself with, who all have those incredibly right wing and hateful views. Uh, we would not have been as shocked by the depths uh, to which they would fall. And today we have the uh, Muslim ban 2.0 yeah. that has been released, and it is just as ugly and despicable as the first one, except that it probably will pass legal muster in a way that the first one didn't. And they did indeed, I think, acknowledge that people who have legal status in the United States will be allowed to come in as opposed to having uh, babies crying, and by babies I mean a baby who's not crying because he's a baby, he or she mm -hmm. is a baby, or an infant, but like a, a four-year-old crying because uh, they're separated from their uh, uh, mother. We won't necessarily have those situations, although you never can tell because mm -hmm. these people are capable of anything. But uh, as I said, we have uh, the Muslim ban 2.0. We also have the Supreme Court's refusal to hear uh, the uh, uh, case of Gavin Graham, which is just so despicable. So uh, we have a lot of uh, we have a lot of uh, work to do. But as I said, I don't see um, electoral solutions, even with excellent uh, progressive candidates, because not that many radicals get elected to office yeah. in the United States, let's face it, uh, although Bernie Sanders did uh, carve out a space for people to be uh, clear about them, the, uh, their politics and being socialist, etc. For those of us who are, I would be one of those people. Mm -hmm. But in any event, as I said, um, electoral solutions are not the sole solutions. I believe very strongly that the most profound social and political change and economic change, too, has always come from the grassroots. And uh, I think when you look at any major uh, change in uh, that's an improvement in our social, uh, political, economic fabric, 
you see that it came from the ground up. It didn't come from the top down. Uh, the top down are the people in power, the government. They get their ideas about what they need to do, or they get the pressure about what they need to do from the uh, bottom up. I experienced that during the civil rights era. Um, I mean, they weren't just sitting up in Washington saying, oh, gee, I think we should have a civil rights bill. And after that, let's have a voting rights bill, too. No, that's not how that happened. (laughs) That happened because people were um, speaking out, organizing, protesting, marching, bleeding, and dying so that black people might uh, move out of that very, very uh, restricted and and uh, uh, debilitating second-class status, which is the status I was born into, because I was born long before uh, those changes of the 1960s occurred. So, How has it been working on, on this and working with sort of a, a new younger generation of, of feminists now working both on this, on the women's strike, um, and more generally for you, do you feel like the lessons of your generation's feminism are sort of being recaptured, especially in this sort of, you know, contest between a more kind of corporate feminism and a, and a more radical feminism? It seems like there's more of an appetite, like it's okay to be radical again. Yes, I, yes, I, would, I would agree to that. I think that there's a lot of interest in uh, the politics and the political practice of people who did not go along to get along. Uh, For those of us who have survived uh, through a lifetime of speaking truth to power, uh, of having an intersectional perspective about what causes and what um, issues it is critical for us to be involved in, people who have been able to manage that in uh, in their lives over, as I said, a, a lifetime I think there's a lot of interest in like, so how did you do that? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and what was it that motivated you and how did you keep going and why did you say that when you, when you said that and et cetera. I have been telling people that I am so incredibly dizzy at this time because I feel like there's so many people who do wish to hear about um, whatever slivers of insights I may have garnered in my decades of political organizing and political practice. I think, uh, and this is even before, um, again, prior to, you know, it's like uh, BT and AT, you know, (laughs) Um, as far as how we mark the the errors in the calendar. But I I have seen that with uh, the Black Lives Matter movement in particular. Mm that there's so much about Black Lives Matter, including the visible leadership of black uh, women, both cisgendered and trans, and uh, women who identify as queer, etc. There is such a uh, such an incredible uh, outpouring of their leadership and such an uh, incredible recognition of the leadership of of black women in a movement that is not focused primarily upon sexual political issues. Wow. I mean, that is incredible. That is so 
very, very significant. And they acknowledge, I know some of the younger women who are leaders in uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, they acknowledge that where they got some of their political inspiration from was from uh, black women of my generation, particularly from the Combahee River Collective and our Combahee River Collective statement. So uh, I think that there's a lot of uh, incredible energy and synergy happening at this time. I think uh, working, I have always worked with younger people, and, you know, as I get older and older and older, (laughs) there are more and more younger people to work with. (laughs) <laughs> because it used to be working with younger people would mean somebody in their 20s if I was in my 40s. Now that I'm in now that I'm 70, there's like a whole slew of younger people, some of whom were actually middle-aged. <laughs> so, as I said, I've always enjoyed having that opportunity and um I think that um we're we're seeing a new generation of uh feminism. I think that uh us Working on those of us who are working on the international uh, women's strike, we see this as a rebirth of a new form and a new variety of feminism that is inclusive, that actually looks at class and race, and um, all, as well as gender and sexuality, and nationality and religion, and uh, living with disability and age. All of the vectors that affect whether we are able to fulfill our lives as full human being beings all of that is being looked at and i think there's brilliance uh that uh we are seeing i think that the women's march on washington and all of the sister marches the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them all over the country and all over the world that's political brilliance um it's collective brilliance i always talk about how the best kind of intelligence is collective intelligence that no one person has the answers to anything (laughs) virtually. And the only way you get to that point of like really, really sharp and incisive brilliance is the collective mind is everybody coming together. And wow, didn't we have a collective mind on January 21st with so many people speaking out and that's women and men. That's everybody. And um, I think we'll see another day like that uh, on March uh, the 8th, too, because uh, so many people with their incredible minds, but also their incredible spirits and hearts are coming together to say, no more, no mas, we are not dealing with this. This is not the right way for humans to be living on the planet. Uh, We do not accept it. And uh, guess what? We are going to change it. So. That's uh, that's how I see things. Uh, there's a lot of I've always been a political optimist. I am more optimistic now than ever, despite uh, these dire times, because I see so much resistance and uh, so much uh, willingness uh, to take on systematic oppression. It's great. Perfect. Thank you so much for taking the time. And you're so welcome. That was academic activist publisher and now organizer of International Women's Strike USA, Barbara Smith. Next up, Jana Grzymała-Moszczyńska to tell us about the women's strike in Poland. What was the black protest uh, that shook Poland uh, last October and that brought out you know, tens of thousands of women onto the streets all over the country? 
Yeah, so uh, Black Protest was basically a reaction of Polish women to attempts of far-right um, making, basically banning abortion at all. I mean, for, for now, our uh, law is quite strict, so we can terminate legally pregnancy only in one of th- in three cases. Um, and if uh, the pregnancy is a fact of rape or if the pregnancy uh, cause, like is a big threat for a woman's life or mm-hmm. um, health. And the third um, uh, issue, well, third possibility is when uh, the fetus is like very sick and that uh, it probably won't uh, live. But right. uh, there is our right NGO that collected lots of signatures under uh, civil proposal of change of law, and they wanted to ban even those uh, well possibilities that we had. So it um, well resulted in mass protests, and people were really well really felt threatened by those attempts. And um, actually, we we really didn't know what to do except of uh, protesting on a huge scale. And apparently, it brought the effect that we wanted, at least for for that time. So uh, the law wasn't uh, passed uh, in a the form they they wanted to. Well, still, the situation is far from what we would concern as the state that we want so we would like all polish women to have rights uh, to safe and legal abortion but now it seems that it would be rather difficult to uh, well proceed it through the current parliament because uh in a like in a parallel to this um civil proposal of pro-life uh activists there was a proposal of initiative called uh, Let's Save Women, mm-hmm. and uh, it was proposing uh, the liberi- liberalization of uh, abortion law. So basically uh, allowing uh, to terminate pregnancy also from social reasons. I know these things don't don't come out of nowhere. What kind of organizing went into making this protest and this strike so successful, especially, you know, in a country where the majority is as socially conservative as it is in Poland, where the right is in power, um, where the left has really atrophied. Um, it's quite a feat mm-hmm. to, to, to create this kind of social pressure, this kind of social movement in a very short space of time. What, what, what went into making this happen? Well, I think there were a couple of um, well factors that made like that allowed it to to happen. First of all, uh, so these were two big initiatives. One was Black Protest, so Czarny Protest, that was started by uh, Razem, uh, the newly, like more or less newly, so uh, established uh, left wing party. And uh, it started with this idea for a social media campaign where women all over Poland, not only uh, feminists 
who were, um, well, ac- like f- not, not only feminist activists, but also women uh, all ages from all uh, parts of Poland were taking pictures of themselves wearing black mm-hmm. uh, and uh, some of them holding uh, like pieces of paper with hashtag uh, czarne protest, black protest. And uh, it somehow allowed lots of women to participate in uh, political life in this way for the first time. There were also lots of demonstrations, even in the places where there haven't been any demonstrations since 1989. Mm-hmm. So it was really, really amazing and really bringing lots of people um, together. So these were like series of uh, different protests. Um, I also think that it was also possible because people felt really threatened by the um, proposal and they saw to what it could uh, lead. So basically it could uh, result in a situation when uh, a woman would miscarry and she would be persecuted. Someone, for example, told the police that she was riding a bike and it resulted with miscarriage. So uh, I feel that lots of women just felt extremely, extremely threatened by by the proposal, and it somehow uh, allowed them to like go together and protest against this uh, really inhumane law. And where is the debate now? You you mentioned that you know, that there were these sort of competing proposals and and neither has really moved forward, either yeah. further restriction or liberalization. Has this, has the protest movement opened up more space for women's organizations and the feminist movement in Poland? Was it more of a sort of one-time thing? Like what's what's been the sort of short-term outcome of, of this? Has has it been possible to keep the energy going? Yeah, so that's uh, that's actually very interesting, especially uh, that we're uh, talking today, uh, because we just came back from the protest. Uh, because I, as I said before, there were two big initiatives. One was um, Czarny Protest uh, by um, Razem Party, but the other one was uh, Women's Strike. Today, cities all over Poland also uh, took part in uh, international women's strike. And uh, it seems that uh, the strike was somehow inspired by uh, the strike that started in in Poland during 3rd of um, October. And today it was really massive demonstrations. And also what is mostly, uh, well, impressive and i'm really really glad to hear that that also women in really small uh cities and towns they also demonstrate and it's not only krakow and warsaw and all those big cities uh, but which is all obviously uh, great as well but also women in small conservative cities uh, so it seems that uh, today 
during 8th of March, we somehow managed to bring this energy back. And uh, the postulates of the strike are really, really great. And uh, I hope that, you know, during some, some time we can change something. However, obviously, um, well, taking into consideration our current uh, political leadership, it's not that easy. Probably, like, it will need some longer fight. Yeah, of course. And, and that's that leads into my next next question. Mm-hmm. What are the what are the lessons of of this of these last few months, especially of the October strike, but today as well, and um, and, and and this whole campaign around abortion? What are the lessons for the for political strategy, especially for um, for the insurgent left, for for Lazem, for these new left wing forces, and for sort of rekindled social movements in in Poland, looking at it sort of longer term, um, how this how does this fit into or change or impact the political strategy? Mm-hmm. Um, well, so for sure, it's uh, it made people more active, and uh, more and more people are becoming politically engaged, especially women which is really great. And we really believe that in our current situation, it's basically only the women that can save the, the world. And uh, it's also really great for us to see that more and more women are joining uh, our party and uh, that they're becoming like great activists and uh, they're getting some empowerment and um it's it's just really really great to to see how uh the october protests really encouraged some people who were not really political uh before like to to really engage and to uh, to participate and also i think that uh the protests and uh, the situation somehow uh made more people think about uh, liberalizing the law, the abortion law, and I think it really has moved some attitudes from being this pro this so-called compromise to the current situation to making the, the abortion law more liberal. Um, so I think it's just uh, like the basic effect or off strike our huge mobilization and I think we we just really need to think uh, how to keep this energy which is not that easy um, yeah like how, how well, would you yeah. yeah what's what's the what's the way to sustain this or to sort of drive it into something that goes beyond uh, uh, well yeah so so probably one of the um, well, strategies uh, involving people and um, different initiatives, like uh, like concerning different, also different rights and different issues. But I really wish I knew the answer for uh, for your question um, about like sustaining this this energy, because especially if people, um, well, that 
I believe, and that if people join around uh, being anti-something, so it was actually the, the, the situation of uh, black protests, uh, it's not that easy to sustain this energy. And uh, we just need to establish some dreams and some like longer term goals to keep people engaged. But, you know, like reality is competing <laughs> with <laughs> activism and everyday life is not always very easy for as far as uh, combining activist life and like, you know, work and uh, home, especially for women, which is also a big problem. That's also why that we, uh, for example, this March um, on uh, our Facebook and generally social media, we uh, try to encourage more and more women to uh, join us. And we are sharing stories of uh, our female members and their motivations to join us. And we're just, you know, trying to gather this energy also um, around uh, organization, which also makes it a bit easier than when it's only like Facebook group. Do you see the potential for more actions that basically create sort of social and political strikes around issues? Like, I think that was something that people in the U.S. are... It's interesting because people in the U.S. are referencing Poland where the women's movement is relatively weak, but which produced this this big protest and a big sort of, you know, women's strike um, on the 3rd. What do you see as the potential for this kind of tool of social protest or social strike in Poland? Or was that more of a sort of one-time one time thing? Like how widespread was it and how possible is it to replicate it? As a as a tactic. Yeah, so um, I think during third of March, uh, oh, third of October, sorry, there were lots of women, especially in bigger cities, well, going on strike. But actually, it wasn't in many cases. It wasn't um, like the the when the actions consistent with the definition of strike. They were just you know like telling their. Um, Employ, uh, employers that they would like to take, to take a day off or they were somehow negotiating uh, to, you know, like work on the other day. And it wasn't a massive strike in a sense like uh, like the one that happened on Iceland. Yeah. Right? And, uh, but I think that also the government and uh, the parliamentarians got somehow scared with the public reaction to uh, to their attempt uh, of changing the law. And they really, I, I really believe that they didn't really expect that scale of protest. Uh, but well, I mean, looking at the example of Iceland, I think that it is probably possible, but I'm also not sure how in this very precarious um, situation on labor market, for example, uh, especially of uh, many women, uh, how much, like how possible it would be. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so probably that there would 
have like there are many factors that would have to happen to uh, make it possible again. But uh, taking into consideration how bad things had to be to encourage uh, that like masses of people to to participate, I wish it wouldn't be you know necessary. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Probably, but 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 I really hope that um, that it will you know like that our kind of victory because it's still not victory it's just preserving status quo which is far from great would just inspire some people to to also take take the things in their hands and we could see like after uh, our october protest uh women in south korea uh, women in salvador i mean you know like in different mm. places and now in the states and it's really also empowering for us to see how this power spreads around the world and that we can really, well, somehow influence uh, the reality. That was Joanna Grzymała-Moszczyńska, psychologist and member of Razem, the new left-wing party in Poland. That's all for this week. Talk to you again soon.